Welcome to Music Business Mindset, a podcast where we're all about helping you grow personally and professionally as an artist. My name is David Ryan Olson. I am from Evergreen Records. We are all about helping artists like you grow. So that's why we do things like this podcast. Today, we have a very, very special crossover episode with James Cross of the Bandhive Podcast. James, how are you doing, dude? I am doing amazingly well. Just cracking up over here. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing great. It's been my goal all morning as we were getting ready to record this episode just to see how much I could get James to crack up. <laughs> That's not exactly difficult. I am the master of dad puns and appreciate even the smallest pun. So, yeah, crossing over to the topic of the crossover... <laughs> <laughs> my name is James Cross, and part one of this episode was actually on my podcast, The Bandhive Podcast. For part two, we're here on David's show, which I guess it doesn't even matter if it's part one or part two, because they come out at the same time. I mean, I would highly recommend if you are listening to this episode and you haven't listened to the episode that is on the Bandhive feed, go and check that one out. We did cover a bunch of things that we're going to reference back today. So I would love it if you are in the loop for that. Just search for Bandhive on your podcast app. You'll find it. You'll see the episode that came out today. This whole series that we're doing is just about six lessons that we've learned during COVID and how you can implement those lessons into your career going forward. So go listen to the first three lessons on the Bandhive feed and then come back to this episode and listen to the final three as well. Before we jump in, if for some reason someone didn't go and listen to the previous three on your feed, James, I'd love just to have you do like a little 30 second introduction to who you are. Yeah, sure thing. Basically, I am a jack of all trades, master of none. My preferred trades are things in the tour management, production, logistics, or systems side of things. Systems being, you know, like setting up your email list, your merch store, your website, all that kind of stuff and having things talk to each other. And going back to when I started in the industry in 2009, I started in radio, just like you did, David, and then went to school for audio. Didn't learn any audio in school. <laughs> At least <laughs> YouTube taught me more. But I loved the tour management class. So I said, okay, I'll get into touring and did touring for a few years. Left the industry entirely, realized I hated that and came back to the industry and started working with artists through my mixing studio. And then I had so many people asking me questions about the industry that I said, okay, this is going to be a podcast. And that's where I am now in the Bandhive podcast. Right on. So I guess without further ado, since hopefully most people have listened to the previous episode, we're not going to rehash those. Let's just go ahead and jump into our next three tips, the final four through six tips of the six lessons that COVID has taught us. And real quick, I just want to jump in here and say, for those of you who are Bandhive listeners and are now listening to this, First of all, thank you. Secondly, please make sure to hit the subscribe button in whatever podcast app you're in because Music Business Mindset is a great show. I'm honored to be here and I think you will really enjoy it going forward as well. Oh, well, thank you, James. Oh, my pleasure. So tip number four of the six lessons that we have learned from COVID is all about branding and the importance of branding in your music project. James, this was your idea to bring up and talk about today. So do you want to just kind of give us the overview of what your thought is here? Yeah, definitely. And I just want to say branding is not a new concept. If you've looked at any major label act, their branding is amazing. It's stellar. 
But during COVID, it's become even more important for DIY artists to have good branding because all you can do during the pandemic is post online or do live streams or very limited live shows, socially distanced kind of stuff. Some restaurants had outdoor patios and that kind of thing. So focusing on your branding is more important now than ever as the world becomes more and more digitized. And that's not going to change now that things are opening back up, shows and tours are happening again. You still need to focus on your branding because it's one of the things that sets artists apart. And I, I want to throw an example out there. Paris or Paviris, if you don't know them already because <laughs> they spell it with a V. Years ago, when they first started, they were a metalcore band with two singers. And I think they had a different name too. But this was in Boston where I was in school. They're from the same area. And they completely rebranded, got rid of the Screamer, and went to their more like dark alt-pop kind of whatever you would call it. And all of their branding was so carefully put together. I had some mutual friends with them, and one of them said, yeah, Lynn is a graphic designer. So she's very visually oriented, and everything has to be on brand. And that's why things are going so well. And this was, you know, 2014 when they were making a name for themselves. They put out their first album, but they hadn't even done Warp Tour for the full summer yet. That was 2015 when they just blew up and started playing the main stage. They got bumped up from the little like baby stage to the main stage because they did so well. And they kicked Man Overboard off the main stage, which <laughs> I like Man Overboard, but Paris is cool. Anyway, I think a massive part of Paris's success, especially early on, was because they didn't look like a local band, even though at that point they were absolutely still a local or regional band at best. They didn't look the part. So people didn't have this idea of, yeah, if we go to the show, it's a local show, like it's going to suck. They thought, wow, this band has their stuff together and they're going to sound good. So if you spent the last year focusing on quality branded content, you are much more likely to get people to come out to shows now than if you just posted whatever and it was not on brand at all. So my point here is if you haven't been focusing on branding, that sucks, but it's not too late. You can start focusing on branding now and it is up to you to win back anybody that you might have alienated by making them think that you're just another local band who isn't that good. Mm -hmm. Well, before we get too far down the road, let's maybe define what branding is as well, because it's a term that people throw out all the time and they say, oh yeah, <laughs> that's a brand or I'm rebranding, LOL, my Twitter. <laughs> but let's define more of in like a business sense and specifically for artists, what branding is. Do you have a definition of that? Yeah. Well, I'm going to give you two. The first one that most people think of is a visual identity. That's the low-hanging fruit of branding. But really, it is everything about you that is public-facing. So it's your visual identity. It's what you write on social media. And this applies to the members, too. You want the members to be at least somewhat on brand. They don't have to be an exact match for the brand, but they can't be off-brand. They have to be brand-adjacent. And essentially, it plays into your target audience. Whatever you want that target audience to feel, however you want to connect to them, your branding needs to speak to them. So, for example, this is one that I've seen far too often is local bands get up on stage and they're wearing band shirts and cargo shorts. Now, I wear band shirts all the time. Like, that's what I'm comfortable with. But I also understand that that's not an amazing brand. If I were to play a show, even though I wear cargo shorts on the hottest days in summer, when I play a show, you better believe that even if it's 110 degrees, I'm going to be wearing skinny jeans 
and a flannel. And that's assuming that if I'm playing a show like in the punk or pop punk genres. If it's a different genre, I would wear something genre appropriate. If I were in a ska band, okay, maybe I would wear cargo shorts. Point being is that it's a uniform. For each member, it's a uniform. Another great example, look at AFI in 2006. They released December Underground. Their entire setup was white. Their amps and cabs, white. Drums, white. White jeans, white shirts. Everything was white because it was a snow-themed album. That is branding. And now I'm not saying you have to do that, but you could. A good example of a local band who does this is the Rithers from Southern California. They are all about the black and pink aesthetic. I would definitely recommend just looking up their Facebook, The Rithers, W-R-I-T-H-E-R-S, and just look at their pictures. They are perfectly on brand. Now, they're not doing a commercially viable sound, really, but that's not what they're trying to do. They are trying to do horror punk, which is awesome. Like, that's one of my favorite genres. They're not trying to appeal to the masses, but they are still focusing on their branding so that they stand out from all the local artists who don't put in any effort. Absolutely. And to kind of riff on that, you talked about how AFI has like a very distinct brand for every era that they're in. Another example that does something similar is Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift is a freaking genius at branding, like her or not. I mean, definitely, I have Swifty tendencies. <laughs> like, <laughs> if you think back through the years, it's like, okay, the red era had like, you know, this kind of like vintage kind of classiness to it. And then after Red, she kind of rebranded to the synth pop thing and her whole style visually revolved around this new sound that she had created around that. Beyond that reputation, the sound was darker. Her look was darker. Lover, she was trying to go for more of like the happy, I don't even know what to describe Lover, bright pastels and all of that. Folklore rebranded again to be kind of dark and moody and that matched the sound of the of the record. So I guess my point in this sense is that branding is not just your visual identity. It's also a congruent set of feelings and ideas and emotions about what you are doing, which visual is a big part of that because your visual is the first communication of your overall brand value. So thinking about like, well, does everything fit? And I I want you to also think about branding as does it fit? And not as in, how am I going to craft this contrived identity? Because branding is not selling out. It is just being intentional about your look, about the feelings you evoke, all of that fun stuff that's super important for creating a good first impression and carving out a certain space in someone's brain about what you are, what you stand for. Absolutely. And I think it's really about embracing your scene and not standing out like a sore thumb. If you're in a scene, if you're playing a genre, you know how people in that scene dress. Dress appropriately. It's cliche, but dress for the job you want, not the job you have. So if everyone in your local scene, let's just say the punk scene, is wearing cargo shorts and band shirts, but the people in the bands themselves are dressing just a little classier, and I don't mean the other local bands, I mean like the regional and smaller national bands, do what they're doing. Don't do what all the local wannabes in your scene are doing. Take that step up. That's not to throw any shade at people who don't do branding. We're just trying to tell you that, hey, if you do this, people will have more respect for you without even thinking about why. Just in their brain, it's wired to be like, oh, these people look like they're in a band. Okay, that's good. Well, but can I also push back on that a little bit? Just because you are in a particular genre doesn't necessarily mean that you have to like look like everybody else. 
All that matters is that you figure out what your brand is and you match that. You could play heavy metal and as long as your shtick is like, oh yeah, LOL, we're a bunch of like dads in cargo shorts, that is fine if that's what your brand is. But you also have to lean into that. Push back against me, James. Yeah, I I could see a place for that, but it's also going to be very easy for people to then just discount you and say it's a bunch of dads who don't know what they're doing, just having fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. If a bunch of dads just want to go have fun playing music, that's great. But don't expect commercial success. One of my friends, Wesley, he lives down in Puerto Rico. The metal scene down there is crazy. Pretty much every band has stage outfits. So there's one, oh, I can't remember. It's not Sabaton, the Polish band. It's, I think it's Savacon. And basically it means garbage disposal in Spanish. If you speak Spanish and I'm saying this wrong or I have totally the wrong word, I apologize sincerely. But the band, when they go play on stage, they all wear waste disposal uniforms. And that is their thing. That's their brand. And that's amazing. So if you want to look different from everyone else, find something like that that is cool and catchy and unique. And you don't look like everyone else, but you don't look like you're just somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. I guess the best way to summarize this is just be intentional and don't just assume that whatever you happen to be wearing is fine. And I don't want to get too hung up on just like the clothes you're wearing, but overall your brand, visual identity is a part of that. Yeah. And to tie into that, Attitude. One of my favorite bands was Sick Puppies. Their new stuff is eh. But when they were at their prime with their original singer, I've met him. One of the nicest guys you will ever meet. The whole band, super nice. But on stage, he has this persona of just like, oh, I'm so much better than you. And if the crowd's not getting in his face enough, if they're not singing back, he's like, come on, louder. You guys suck. Like, get louder, get louder. And that's his brand. He would never say one-to-one to a fan, you suck. But if the crowd's not loud enough, he'll tell them they suck and try to rile them up and get them pissed off and make them louder. That's just part of the brand. He's playing into the egotistical rock star brand. And then you meet him and he's literally one of the nicest guys ever. You need to live your brand. Like you said, David, it's not just your clothing. It's everything. It's how you act. It's how you talk. It's what you write. It would be off brand for AFI to at least 2006 AFI. They've changed now, but 2006 AFI, if they wrote a Cure-esque pop love ballad type thing, that would be way off brand. Now they can do it 15 years later because they've changed. But back then, that would have been way off brand and it would not have worked out for them. And this is when, you know, my chem was big and stuff like that. But that's a great point is that your brand can evolve over time. You don't have to necessarily marry your brand. Yeah, your brand can change. And I think we've seen that with everybody. Like you were saying with Taylor Swift, another example is Metallica. They have a very set brand. And then there's that picture floating around of James Hetfield who just came out of Armani And he's wearing cargo shorts, flip-flops, and like a polo shirt (laughs) holding a shopping bag from Armani. That's not on brand for him. And you bet when he goes out on stage, he's going to look like a metalhead. But in his daily life, he's not a metalhead anymore. That's branding. He's putting on a uniform to go to work. Yeah. Well, I think another interesting way to think about branding is, is your brand building something that people can get behind and get invested to? If you think about back when you were a teenager and you lived for your artists that you loved, James, for you, it's AFI. One of them. Yeah. (laughs) Everything about the AFI brand was about what are you trying to get people behind and feel like they're understood by being a lead of a movement to a certain degree. For me, it was like, you know, in high school, I was super into like Death Cab. 
as a sad, anxious teenage kid, Death Cab, their whole brand was like something I could get behind and feel like, oh, no one gets me but Death Cab. I wasn't ever that dramatic about it. But like, you know, (laughs) your brand, again, it's more than your music. It's like, what can people attach to and feel like gets them? It's the same reason why so many people love Apple is because for the longest time, you can make the argument that they've lost a little bit of their soul. But for the longest time, Apple was a brand that people could feel attached to. They had a whole campaign about here's for the crazy ones and the misfits and the rebels and the troublemakers and the round pegs and square hole. The ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules and they have no respect for the status quo because they change things. I'm forgetting the rest of this. Take away my Apple fanboy card. But, (laughs) But like the point is they positioned their brand as something for the rebels of the world and the people who are creative and wanted to do things just a little bit differently. So how are you positioning your brand in a way that people can attach to that? Yeah, I have three things to say. And the first two are just somewhat factual statements. The first one is, we're recording this on June 30th. And according to TimeHop, when I looked at it this morning, 14 years ago, the first iPhone was ever sold. So June 30th, 14 years ago. That doesn't make you feel old for those who are in their late 20s like we are. (laughs) I don't know what will. I'm 28. I remember very clearly the day the iPhone came out. That was half my lifetime ago. I remember skipping class. I was in eighth grade and somehow snuck out of class to go read about the iPhone in the library. (laughs) Nice. I must have been in eighth grade as well, or between eighth and ninth, I guess. Something like that. Anyway, the second is, there's more crossover here because for years, AFI's merch guy, Fritch, was also Death Cab's merch guy. Those were his two main bands, and they happened to not typically tour at the same time. So those were like, literally, like for five to ten years, those were his two main acts, and he'd just switch back and forth between the two. I worked a Death Cab show once, and I didn't put the connection together because I met him. And then years later, I found I was like, oh, I should have talked to him more. (laughs) (laughs) I could have gotten a job with my favorite band. (laughs) Anyway, that all aside, to go back to what you were saying about how it speaks to your fan base, I just have to put another AFI reference out there, two of them in fact, on their 1998 album Black Sails in the Sunset, the intro track is called Strength Through Wounding. And basically it's just a chant of them saying over and over again, through our bleeding, we are one. They are trying to connect the misfits, like exactly what you were talking about with Apple. They were trying to connect those people. Two albums later, 2003, Sing the Sorrow comes around, and same thing, the intro track was called Miseria Cantare, which basically means we sing the sorrow. And In there, one of the lyrics was, as we all form one dark flame. So it's, again, unity, bringing together. And for a long time, they had a history of putting out really amazing intro tracks. And the next album, again, Prelude 1221 from December Underground in 2006, which was the era where they were all wearing white, didn't really have so much of a togetherness feel, but it was still there subtly. And then in 2009, they more or less ditched the intro format, but they still had a song that worked as an intro. And with that song, and this is just my interpretation of it, but it's talking about how they would do anything for somebody. They were saying they'd tear out their eyes for that person. I think that was for their fan base as well. It was meant to be like, hey, you're listening to this, I would do anything for you. Now that's just my interpretation, but seeing what they did on the past albums, it seems like a pretty good flow to me. My sidetrack there is, you can literally put this in your songs. Like your songs have your branding in them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our next big takeaway from the time of COVID is about building your tribe. We have noticed that over the past year and a half, the people who 
survived and still made money were the ones that had put in the work to build a tribe around their business. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, (laughs) this is predictable, but I'm going to go back to AFI again. In 2002 or so, they started what was called the Despair Faction. And now it's more or less not a thing, but the community that they built is still incredibly active. Although fragmented, there are Facebook groups with several thousand people in them who are all about AFI. Another one is I Fight Dragons. They are much newer. They formed in 2008 or 2009, somewhere around there. And they started running their own online forums where people could join the forum and talk with each other and talk with the band. And they built this great sense of community around nerdy stuff because they're a chiptune band, chiptune pop rock. And that's still going to this day. They have a massive Patreon and they have a great Discord. And a lot of the people from that original group that they had on, I think it was called Ning, some kind of like build your own forum site, a decade ago is now on their Discord server, still talking to each other. I joined once and hopped on right away. Like three people were like, wait, James from 10 years ago, James? I'm like, yep, that's me. <laughs> that just shows what this does. And now I've, I've kept in touch with those people on Facebook, but not as part of the group. So they still remember me, but that just shows like I have friends that I haven't talked to much in the last eight years that I made 10 years ago and we still all remember each other. We remember those good times. And because of that, I'm going to have to out myself here. I'm not the biggest I Fight Dragons fan anymore. I still love their music, but they're just not as active as they were back in the day. And that's fine. They're adults. They have kids, that kind of stuff. They're not focusing on the band full time anymore. So I don't get to see shows as much. I haven't seen them live in seven years. But I still love their music. And when I'm reminded of their community, it's like, yeah, these are my people. This is cool. That's just to illustrate community is so important. I still give them $35 on Patreon every time they release an album because I'm like, it's $35. I get the album on vinyl and they change my life in a positive way. Of course I'm going to do that. Why would I not? So build a community and people will thank you and give you their money. Yeah. Well, and I also just want to clarify before we get too far in the weeds on this topic is building your tribe is more than just getting people involved on whatever community platform. It's more than just creating a Facebook group. It's more than just creating a Discord. It's more than launching a fan club or whatever. It's about building deep and actual relationships with your fans. It's about, are you able to convert your casual fans into more than that? I'm going to bring back the thing that we've talked about a couple of times here that, oh man, really need to come up with a better name, but it's stuck at this point. David's hierarchy of leads. (laughs) And just as a refresher, there are basically four categories of people that you can think about when it comes to your band. First level is non-fans. Self-explanatory, people who don't know about you, don't like you for whatever reason. Then beyond that, you have casual fans. And these are, you know, people that say, oh, yeah, you know, I kind of like their music or whatever. Maybe they've streamed your stuff a couple of times. Maybe I've saved a song or two. But, you know, really, they're not invested much beyond just like, oh, yeah, I'll play that song when I'm feeling like I want to listen to that song. Yeah, this is the equivalent of a decade ago when people would go to shows because they heard one song on the radio. And then after they hear that song, they leave. Right. Beyond that, then you have true fans. And these are people that are actually a little bit more invested in what you're doing. They're way more likely to come to your shows. They're way more likely to actually pay you money for anything, to donate to your crowdfunding campaign. They're likely to share when you have big news. But then beyond that, you have super fans. And these are like people that are just really, really on fire for you. And they will do anything for you. They will buy any piece of merch. They'll donate to any 
crowdfunding thing you do. They'll sign up for your Patreon, pay for a higher tier. Even if your top tier is 20 bucks a month on Patreon, they'll give you 50 bucks anyway. If you're coming into town and you want to do like a stupid fundraising gala just for the heck of it, they're down for that. These are people that just live and breathe for you. The people that have been successful over the last year and a half have been the ones who have put in the work to convert casual fans into true fans and true fans into super fans. They have a dedicated tribe of people around them. And then once you reach a certain point, it's a feedback loop because it's super easy then to launch an online community where, you know, people are making friends with each other and then becomes a lot harder to leave that community because you've made friends and all of that. All of this is to say, don't think that it's enough to build a tribe just by saying, oh yeah, join, you know, my band's Facebook group or whatever. And we'll talk about stuff. You have to put in the groundwork a little bit before that. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to also understand those four stages that David was talking about. If you don't understand that, how are you going to understand what it takes to move people along that hierarchy? Absolutely. But let's talk about like a couple of different things that you can do to continue nurturing your tribe. We've talked about discords and Facebook groups. You have a little bit more experience with these areas than I do, James. So why don't you go ahead and just kind of talk about those? Yeah, sure thing. Essentially, what you want to do is make sure that the band is interacting with people enough to keep them interested in the group, because that's why people are there is they want to talk to the band. But stay out of it so that people can build relationships amongst themselves as well. So it's a very, very careful balance you have to follow. You need to make sure that you're giving enough, but not giving too much. You don't want to saturate the market, so to say. So I think really the best thing here would be if you're not already in some communities like this for your favorite bands, go join some. And off the top of my head, there's two. There's one, Bally Hooligans. It's for the band Ballyhoo. And then they just added Ligans at the end, like Hooligans. They're on Facebook. And then there's also Half-Lives. They are from France. And there's two differences here. Bally Hooligans has been around for quite some time. Half-Lives Facebook group, which I believe is called Half-Lives Unity. They've only been a group since October 2020. And they have, last I checked, 985 members. So by now, probably over 1,000 because this was a week ago. That's huge. In eight months, they have 1,000 people into their Facebook group. And they are a DIY band. They're not some label band. They also understand branding extremely well. Their branding is amazing. My point here is that you can look at Half-Lives and Belly Hooligans and see what is going on in their groups. It's very different. Half-Lives is very focused on mental health and self-care, that kind of stuff, you know, making sure like, hey, we're going to care for our fans. Whereas Belly Hooligans, Belly Hoo's a reggae rock, or they call it beach rock band they're more just like hey let's have a good time like share what you're listening to that kind of stuff you know it's less of mental health and more of just like hey this is like a digital party and so you can build your community in different ways but if you're not in a community now i definitely encourage you to check out those two groups or search and see if there is one for a band you like for afi this isn't run by afi but fall children would be the group i recommend for that if you want to see how that works but again the band's not in there, so don't use that as an example necessarily, but you can still see what the community's like. Absolutely. And just to kind of reiterate that it doesn't necessarily have to be a community or a forum. When I think of a band that's built a very, very good tribe is my friends, the Talbot Brothers. They can go to pretty much any city and they have super fans there. That's because they put in the legwork before they hang out with people after shows, they get to know them, they interact on social media really, really well. And so then when it came time to launch their Indiegogo for their new album that's coming out, 
they freaking basically got double their projected goal, which is insane. They asked for something like the 30,000 range and got like 50 something, which is awesome. They wouldn't have had that if they had only focused on building casual fans because casual fans don't care about donating to your crowdfunding campaign. Because they've built a tribe, they can literally just say the word and something happens. Yeah. I want to go back and explain why we think this is so important. Now, obviously, we've said, like, these are the bands who are still successful and all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to go back to Ballyhoo. As soon as the pandemic hit, I believe it was like March 23rd, 24th, sometime around that time of 2020, they did a super high value live stream. And what they did was they said, hey, the live stream's free, but if you want to support us, there's this shirt that is only available during the live stream and 24 hours after. It's specifically for this. It's a pre-order. We're only going to print as many as are ordered. So it's limited edition. If you want it, you got to buy it now. And that will help us pay the bills because our tour just got canceled. And then they did like six of those. And every time it was great, they got around to October and it was their annual Halloween show, still a live stream, of course. They sold tickets. They said, hey, it's either $5 for a ticket or any merch purchase will get you a free ticket. Just make sure to add the ticket to your cart so it's in there and then a discount will be applied automatically. So they figured out how to monetize this first by getting their fans used to the idea of a live stream, by making it free, anybody can join, and then saying, hey, go buy this shirt if you want this. And of course, any super fan is going to want the shirt. I bought one. (laughs) (laughs) And then when they did the Halloween show, instead of following that same model, because it was higher production value, they did like special effects and that kind of stuff. They really made it an experience. They did the pre-sales for tickets. And I don't know the numbers, but I would say it's safe to bet that more people bought a shirt and got the free ticket than actually paid for the ticket. Because if it's $5 for a ticket or $25 for a shirt, who's not going to buy a shirt? That's what I did. I just said, oh, well, I want a shirt anyway, so I'm going to buy a shirt and I'll get the free ticket. Boom, done. Super easy. So point being, if they hadn't had that following, that community, that tribe, they probably wouldn't have been able to keep making money And I got to say, it's so obvious when I go to shows, seeing which artist has a tribe and which doesn't, like you go to an AFI show or an I Fight Dragons show or a Ballyhoo show, as soon as doors open, everyone is up front. They want to be right up there as close as humanly possible. About a decade ago, I saw Pennywise. Amazing band. I love Pennywise. I walked in half an hour after doors and got a spot on the barricade. And at first, my reaction was, Wow, they did not sell well. And then after the opener, I turn around and the room is literally packed. It was almost sold out. To me, that's saying, okay, they don't have a tribe. Like they have a bunch of casual fans that are like, oh yeah, that band from the 90s, we'll go see them. But they do not have a tribe. And that is the difference right there. If you are going to shows and people are right up front for you and they are willing to wait there for however long they need to while other artists play, you have a tribe. If they're just hanging out in the back by the bar until you actually go on, you don't have a tribe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think of another great example of a band that's built a fantastic tribe on top of a fantastic brand is the guest that I had on this podcast last week, Lords of the Trident. They are freaking epic about this. If you go to their website right now, I'm, I'm on it. It's fantastic. The most metal band on earth. Yeah, it's the most metal band on earth. And their whole brand is like, we're going to do over the top power metal. And we wear stupid costumes about like we're barbarians and like all the metal tropes, right? They just lean into that. Yeah, Ty makes his own leather work. <laughs> yeah, like what the frick? 
<laughs> the guys have such a strong brand that they have built an incredible tribe around them. And they have a killer, killer Patreon where their community is then getting even more invested in them. They're crushing it. So go listen to that episode. It is amazing. It might be one of my favorite episodes that we've done so far. I can't wait to hear it. I'm very much looking forward to that one <laughs> because I know how amazing Ty is. And I'll just leave it at that. You all need to go to listen to that episode. It's great. I can already say that. I haven't heard it, but I can say that. <laughs> but again, the point is they have a tribe around them that will do pretty much anything for them because they have invested both in their brand and in their people. Yeah. And I want to illustrate again that as with Half-Lives, Lords of the Trident is a DIY band. They even print their own merch. That is how DIY they are. Yeah. One thing about building your tribe that is a little bit discouraging is it's not an overnight thing. You can't build a tribe overnight. You can't just set up a Facebook group and invite people to it and say, oh yeah, well, yeah, I have a tribe now. It takes a lot of work over a lot of time, which leads us to our next point. Their final uh, takeaway from the COVID experience. The COVID experience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> that is going to be a band name in about 2028. Oh, frick. I hate it. I'm not going to do it, but somebody will do it. I'm putting that out there. But anyway, <laughs> that leads us to our next point, which is big takeaway from COVID is perseverance. And this is in some ways self-explanatory. I think we all know what perseverance is because, you know, we were taught about it growing up and all that fun stuff. So basically what you're saying is be like Rick Astley. Oh, never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. <laughs> Apologies for my terrible singing voice. Leland, feel free to auto-tune that. <laughs> never going to give you up. Never going to let you down. So my point there is for all the artists who saw COVID and said, okay, that's it. We're not doing anything. See ya. We'll be back. You messed up. You messed up big time. Because every single band who was there for their fans in one of the most difficult times we as humanity have faced in recent history, those bands who were there for their people, for their tribe, those bands who said, we're not going to throw in the towel. We are going to figure it out and make this work. Those are the bands people still care about now in 2021. So if you did nothing, if you gave up, if you said, ah, screw this, I am not doing any music until this is over, you messed up. You lost out on a massive opportunity because you let down your fans and ignored Rick Astley. <laughs> let me push back against that. I 100% agree that you should look at what your natural response was during this past year and say, do I shut down or do I try and keep forging ahead? I'll be honest, I tended towards shutting down over the past year, which like, honestly, I don't blame you if you did. It's tough. It's brutal out there. But at the same time, what matters is do you pick yourself up? Are you being resilient? No one's going to fault you for being stressed during a freaking global pandemic where our entire like way of life was like just totally flipped on its heels. That's human nature to get stressed about any sort of major adjustment like that. But I guess my question for you is, are you going to be a person that pushes through those types of things? Or are you going to be a person that just kind of lets things happen to you? And I think there, first of all, that's a great point, David. But the thing is, 
If you let this stop you, as stressful as it is, touring can many times be more stressful, at least from my COVID experience where I'm very lucky that I work from home. So it didn't affect me in a major way. It affected a lot of my friends. But as a band, putting content out there, doing live streams, engaging with your fans, like you should enjoy that. So if you're stressed about stuff, do something that you enjoy. And if you don't enjoy interacting with your fans that's going to be an issue for you in the long term. If you can't interact with your fans, if you're drained by it, let me clarify, this doesn't have to be every single band member. There just has to be one person who will interact with the fans. So if you're listening to this, you're the business guy, you're the nerd like me, who is a total introvert, be that introvert. That's fine. But find the most sociable person in your band, the guy or girl who loves talking to people and will talk their ear off And be like, hey, you are in charge of engaging with our fans. This is your job. You're going to make sure that they feel seen during this time when we're freaking out because all our shows got canceled. They're freaking out because they lost their job. They're freaking out because they lost a family member. Like, whatever it is, let's be there for them. I'm not saying you have to go to the extent that Ballyhoo did and play like six live streams. If you can, that's amazing. Because Ballyhoo's live streams were super high production. But you don't have to release new music. You don't have to do anything really except be there for your fans. Show them that, hey, we understand what you're going through. We're going through this too. And we're going to do this together. That's building a community. That's building a tribe. If you just say, you know what? We're going to peace out until this is all over. Your community is not going to be there anymore. Why should they be? Yeah. Well, and if I can add on to that, it doesn't necessarily mean that you instantly have to become a social media influencer in the traditional sense. (laughs) Yeah, definitely not. You probably saw a lot of your fellow artists leaning in to social media, but I think it's also equally as important that you find your lane when things change. Like change is always going to happen. You're always going to have to adjust to things, but are you going to figure out a way to adjust that also works for you? Yeah. I want to tie this into a point that you put on our outline here, David, which is the locus of control, if you want to go down that path a little bit. Yeah. So there's a concept in psychology, and my apologies for anybody who's a psych major or whatever, but there's a spectrum to describe how you interact with the world around you. You can either have an internal locus of control or you can have an external locus of control. So what does that mean? An internal locus of control is someone who says, okay, it's up to me to decide how I'm going to respond to things. You're not going to just lay over. You're going to accept that the world is going to change and sometimes the world is going to fuck you. (laughs) You have to accept that. But how do you respond to that and how do you adapt in spite of that? Having an external locus of control is you are completely passive to whatever is happening. You're the kind of person that just says, well, you know, COVID happened and I can't do anything about that. So I'm just going to eat chips. (laughs) And it's okay to kind of struggle with some of this. I definitely have times where I lie down and, and just check out. But I think the important thing is to be mindful of when you are slipping into the tendencies of external locus of control and push yourself more towards having an internal locus of control. Yeah, absolutely. That describes the artists who, at the start of COVID, the ones with the internal locus of control and said, hey, we can put a spin on this. We can make this work for us. That's an internal locus of control. In, in my opinion, that's what they have. The folks with the external locus of control, they're probably the ones that were saying, hey, okay, whatever, we'll shut down for a while. We can't do anything. Because they were saying, hey, 
What are we supposed to do? There's a pandemic. Whereas the folks with internal locus of control said, this is what we need to figure out. So let's figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess I want to also make the point that if you tried to do stuff during COVID and it didn't work, that does not mean that you were a failure. The world was screwed up. No one knew what was happening. So if you were trying to do something new, whether that was post funny content on YouTube or start your own podcast for your your band or whatever, and it didn't end up being all that you had hoped, that's 100% okay. And you can 100% blame COVID for that not working if you need like, you know, a mental out for yourself. But what matters is that you picked yourself up and you said, you know what, the world's weird. We're going to just keep pressing on and see what works and what doesn't work. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to put this out there. I'm not trying to say like, hey, don't let stuff get you down. When COVID hit, I was incredibly lucky that for the Bandhive podcast, we had recorded 10 weeks in advance. And I was in Germany when the travel ban came down. (laughs) So I had to figure out how to get home and actually do that without getting COVID. And I made it. I was fine, thankfully. Knock on wood, I have not had COVID yet. But it was a really stressful time for me. And had we not had 10 weeks of content, if we'd been like a week ahead, the podcast would have stopped. Because we had that 10 weeks of content, we made it work. And I had some gear. I drove over to my co-host's house and said, here's some gear. Let's start recording again when you're ready. And we started recording remotely instead of in person. Had we not had those 10 weeks, we literally didn't record, I think for eight weeks. I think we got down to a two-week buffer from 10 weeks. But nonetheless, as I saw that date approaching, I said, okay, it's time for us to start back up. Looks like we're going to have to do this remotely, but we're going to do it. If you're down, I'm down. And we did it. And we have not, since December of 2019, missed a single episode. So my point in bringing this up is, if you plan ahead a little bit, if you're able to batch content and put it out there, when something goes wrong, like you have a death in the family, or a pet dies, or a friend dies, or anything like that, that stuff all sucks, and you're not going to want to do anything for that week. And that is totally understandable. I don't blame you take that week off. But if you have that content in your back pocket that's already scheduled to go out, you can take that week off and no one's even going to know. So that is a big part of perseverance is don't just fly by the seat of your pants and be like, oh, what am I posting today? Here's what I'm posting. Have a plan and be like, okay, I have my social media content for the next three weeks. So if something happens tomorrow, you get in a car crash and have to go to the hospital, that sucks. But as long as you're going to be okay before three weeks are up, no one's even going to know And that might just be some content for your social media too. Like a few years ago, Frank Carter got in a really bad car crash and had to cancel a whole tour. Social media content, he was all over that. Now he's a very public person. If you don't want to share private stuff like that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're the kind of person who doesn't mind, put that out there. Like use that as content. That will one, get great engagement because everyone's going to be like, oh my God, are you okay? And two, you're growing that engagement give them more content and train the algorithm like, hey, people want to see my stuff. I wouldn't say you should interpret that as have a plan and only stick to your plan. Like be okay with adapting. Your point you're trying to make is you can have contingencies and you can keep moving forward even when things go wrong. You know, there are pandemics and tours get canceled and all that fun stuff. Because the greater point here is that you always need to just push through when things are happening even if it means changing what you're doing a little bit. We have this as a lesson going forward because this is not the last time the world's going to throw you a curveball. 
this is almost like a way to just, you know, ask yourself to learn, to observe what was my response during this past year and how can I use that as a great case study for how I can do better the next time the world throws me a curveball. Hopefully it won't be a global pandemic next time. Oh, please, not again. Hopefully it'll be something, you know, little like a band member has to quit and you got to replace them or something. You you know, those types of things. Yeah. Or even like if your van or bus breaks down. We were one time between LA and Phoenix and the bus turbocharger broke up and we broke down and had to get on a different bus. But it was just like expected, like you get on a different bus and you go. Yeah. Or maybe your housing situation changes and you got to figure out what to do there or some sort of financial instability that's not caused by a pandemic. (laughs) Those are the kinds of things that you have to just figure out how to adapt and you have to just take a deep breath and say, okay, this sucks, but I'm going to deal with it. Yeah, that's really what it comes down to. If perseverance is something that you struggle with, again, I don't want you to hear the message of you're a terrible person and you should just quit life. No, like we all struggle with this. Again, I am the king of shutting down when things happen. So if that's you, like, seriously, please reach out to me and I'll pep talk you, okay? Because I get it. Seriously, email me, david at evergreenrecords.com. I would be more than happy to talk to you about pushing through everything. That's awesome. Yeah, I could see you being a great coach for pep talks. I found what I was trying to look up. It's called PIOC, and it's an acronym for decision-making, which basically means when a problem presents itself, the first thing you do is you identify the problem, not just the symptoms of the problem, but what the problem itself is. So for example, the COVID pandemic, you could say, well, the problem is all our shows got canceled, but that's not the problem. What is the actual problem? The problem is the pandemic. The symptom was your show is getting canceled. So once you know what the actual problem is, then you identify the information that's available to you. So you say like, this is the time frame. They're saying two months, but it could be up to over a year. We don't know. So let's be safe and say it's going to be a year. Then you look at the options you have to continue making music and putting content out there during lockdown. You select one of those options, you execute the option, and then you evaluate. And once you evaluate it, You go right back to the options, and either you choose that same option if it worked well, or you choose a different option if it didn't. So PIOC, that's my acronym for the day. Nice, nice. So I think we're about ready to wrap up this episode here. Just any kind of last-minute takeaways that you have about the whole uh, COVID crisis. I know we just gave six points, but let's wrap it up with a nice little bow here. Yeah, basically, I just want to say, don't give up. The world's coming back together, and we've learned so many things that will help you as an artist, get back on your feet, get back on the road, play shows, all that kind of stuff. Like it's all coming together now. And it's going to take a long time before we see things return to the way they were in 2019. But don't let that get you down. Use this time to think of innovative things that you can do that other artists aren't doing. Because if you're doing something new and exciting that no one has done before, you might just get some press coverage. You're going to get attention from your fans, that's for sure. But like, if you do something unique, pitch that to some news stations. Think back to 2007 or whenever it was when OK Go released the treadmill video. They weren't that famous at the time. I think they were on a label, but it was a small label. They released that video and the news was covering it. It wasn't like a music blog covered it. I'm sure they did. But the news was covering it because it went viral. So do something new and unique that is newsworthy and put that out there. You might just end up on CNN or Fox or whatever news network you don't hate. (laughs) 
Why'd that make me laugh? Because <laughs> <laughs> it's all bad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, James, thank you for coming on Music Business Mindset and uh, having this whole crossover experience happen. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. It's been a blast. And thank you as well for coming on the Bandhive show. I hope everybody who listened to the Bandhive episode is listening to this now. And like I said at the start of the episode, just go ahead and make sure you hit that subscribe button. Mm-hmm. And please go check out the Bandhive podcast. It's fantastic. They have some great guests and cover some great topics. Bandhive, go hit subscribe. Thanks so much. If you don't, I'm going to personally follow up with you and say, why didn't you? <laughs> I know who you are, Steve. <laughs> it's that perseverance. Yeah. <laughs> So that's it for this episode of Music Business Mindset. Just a quick couple of favors before we head out today. First, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, would you go ahead and just give us a quick five-star review? Really helps more people find the show on the charts. Also, if you are working on new music and you want to know what the best game plan is for getting your music heard, getting coverage, getting on playlists and blogs, would love for you to go check out our free half-hour workshop all about promoting your music. It's called Rock the Release. going to teach you everything you need to know, get you on the right direction so you can start racking up streams and playlists. Just go to evergreenrecords.com slash workshop to sign up for that. But for now, that's it, and we'll see you next time.